0: While you're turning there, let me ask you, and and I I do want your vocal input here, let me ask you, what do you think of when we say the word revival? I mean, what what first, and you can be honest, what first comes to your mind? Going to church. church. There we go. Thank you. Honesty. Good. I mean, mine too, right? We, We think of an event, do we not? I mean, most of us. Maybe you're just really spiritual, and you think of how much you need revival, and that's awesome, but probably... Probably you needed to kind of prep yourself to have that answer because we're just so external, aren't we? I mean, we have to intentionally not be that way, um, just part of living in this broken, sinful body. We do. We think of, I mean, I know plenty of churches. Now, we, don't, um, we haven't up to this point done that, but here we are making an event out of it, right? The next 12 weeks, we're having revival. Uh, I've, I've sang in churches, my family sang in churches, and we sang during their revival. And what was it? they start on a Sunday, go all week long, they'd get a special speaker in, they'd have singing, which in that case was us when we were there. Um, and all sorts of different, I mean different denominations probably do it a little bit differently, but it is, at least in the south, is a common thing. It's not just in the south, it's all across the world actually. Anywhere where I could understand the words on the mission field, that was a, that was a theme. And when you saw it, it was the theme of some conference or some event that was happening. And, and we think of, I mean, revival is never like um, a dead, we don't think of like walking into a Catholic church and doing all of their formal, um, you know, rituals and sacraments and all that. We don't think of that as revival. What do we think of revival? Jumping around, happy, you know, whatever, all sorts of different pictures, but it's all like exuberant, exciting and happy, right? Revival, revival, we, we think of things that, are lifeful. We don't think of a funeral when we think of revival, right? Obviously. This morning, as we start off, we're not actually starting off on a um, what I would call a revival topic. We are actually going to ask ourselves a question this morning. I would ask you to ask yourself the question as well. Matter of fact, if you got the daily devotionals, you'll start asking yourself that question every day. One of the things about these daily devotionals is it's not really, um, can't really be a total replacement, I don't think, anyways, of your personal devotions because of the way they structured it. But what it is, it is a recurring asking of questions, it's making you stop from your busyness and consider the state of your Christian life. And yeah, there's scripture in there and, and, and all that personal testimonies, quotes, et cetera, and it's really good. But you'll be asking yourself those questions because. Revival is on the inside. And I'd like you to ask yourself this morning this question. It's the title of our message today. Do I need revival? And I want you to ask yourself that honestly. I've been asking myself this all week long. And I know the answer I gave, and it didn't take very long to give it. Do I need revival? Leonard Ravenhill said, As long as we are content to live without revival we will. Think of that. As long as we are willing to live without revival, we will. There's a lot of truth to that statement. You'll have a chance to discuss that on Wednesday night. We use the term revive when we think of either refresh something refreshing, a refreshment like um, you've been in the desert, which doesn't happen much around here, right? You've been in the desert and you find an oasis, you're revived. You got water and shade and everything else, right? There's a, there's a refreshment that happens. We think of that with revival. We also think of revival when somebody would be going to the emergency room and they break out those electronic paddles to revive that person when they're flatlining, right? So revival is, all, is always a bringing back to life something that was a certain way, bringing the life, refreshing the life of that individual In our case, I don't know which is it for you, but it's possible that you need maybe either one of those. It may be this morning that you don't need revival. You may just need to be saved. It may be that you have never been brought to life by the Spirit of God. You've never been quickened. You've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior of your life, accepting by faith what he did when he paid for your sins on the cross and then rose three days later. Maybe you've never accepted that. So you are still dead in your sins, and you don't need revival. You need to be saved, and we're going to give you. I mean, you don't have to. You can actually drop to your knees right now and get saved, but we'll give you an opportunity as well during the invitation time, and I hope you'll take advantage of that. But whatever the case, revival, the word revival, assumes that at one point there was life. At one point there was life. I remember being a part of a revival. in uh, My church had a... I've I've mentioned to a few people before this, but a a couple men called the Sotera Twins. They were in their mid-60s, and they were identical twins, and they were revivalists. And They came through, and they were in our church for a couple weeks in the 90s. And I was a high schooler at that time, and I can remember. This is what I remember more than anything. At the end of the service, they would give you a time to stand up and give a testimony. And We had this testimony service every single service. You had that chance, and... Here's what I noticed as I watched all of the adults, and then we had our own youth night where we actually did the same thing, and we actually got up on the stage, all of us teenagers, and one by one started doing this. He gave everyone an opportunity to publicly confess their sin. You'd be amazed what that would do for you and for me. It would bring James 5.16 to life in your spirit. Confessing your faults one to another, that you may be healed. Uh, We're so guarded with our sin, aren't we? We're so afraid to let other people know about it. And we're all at different levels. Some of us will let people know like the nice sins, as we think of them as. The ones that everybody does, we think, right? So we'll share those. But the ones that really grab a hold of us from time to time, those are embarrassing. And rightfully so. But you have to ask yourself, why? Am I embarrassed about that? I'm embarrassed for a good reason. Hurts my pride, hurts myself, and rightfully so. It should. And this morning, this week, for the next 12 weeks, this is really why I encourage a devotional, I would like for this not to be in your life just a Sunday morning infomercial on what revival is, but that you will carry this throughout the week, and you'll come back on a Wednesday night, and you'll discuss it. and bring with you a level of transparency to your small group, your fellowship group on Wednesday night. You'll be amazed at what it will do. I was reading in, actually in this devotional, they give a little bit of an intro at the beginning on revivals of the past, and I was reading about the Welsh Revival. And Here's what they said about the Welsh Revival that happened in 1904. It says, one of the marked characteristics of the Welsh Revival was an inescapable sense of the presence of God, Church services that had been cold and formal began to throb with new life. Believers and unbelievers alike came under intense conviction of sin. Confession and restitution, sometimes very costly, became the order of the day. Churches were crowded day and night, not in response to a promotion or some kind of marketing effort or a celebrity speaker or musician being there, but the people were irresistibly drawn there by the Spirit of God. They say in, in 1904, within five months of this revival, 100,000 new converts had been added to the churches in that area. Five years later, 80% of those converts still were going on in their faith. The impact of that revival was felt, it says, in every nook and cranny of society. The gambling and alcohol businesses, they lost trade. Taverns and um, brothels, you know, places of prostitution were closed. Outstanding debts were paid, major sporting events were canceled or postponed due to lack of interest. That's saying something right there. Judges were presented with white gloves because there were no cases to try. The illegitimate birth rate was reduced by 44% in two counties there in Wales. Mules in the mines had to be retrained because the coal miners no longer used profanity when giving their orders. As the news of that revival spread, God began to move in other countries around the world, United States being one of those. As it reached the United States, spilled over into us, we, we took the overflow of that revival. On January 20, 1905, the headlines on the front page of the Denver Post read, Entire City Pauses for Prayer, Even at the High Tide of Business. In Portland, Oregon, 340 department stores signed a covenant agreeing to close their doors from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., each day while their customers and employees attended prayer meetings. In Atlantic City, ministers, preachers were reported that out of a population of 50,000, only 50 adults were left unconverted. We can't even relate to that stuff, right? I mean, we hear it in history books. It's like, wow, that's pretty incredible. And maybe that affects us at some level, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just sounds like facts and figures to you. This morning, bring all those numbers, all those wows down to one, you. Do you need revival? And I'll ask myself the same question. Do I need revival? As we're looking in Revelation, we have kind of put together, uh, with the help of uh, seeking him, some tests. And a really, really fascinating study this week as I was studying the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Now, before we do this, before we get to these seven letters, I would like to uh, just kind of give you a big picture. We want to do the context. We want to know what's going on here in, in, the, in the churches here. These are, these are first of all, and we're going to get to one letter that's in Revelation chapter 2, and we'll get to two letters in Revelation chapter 3. There's no way we could cover all seven, and there's no way we can do them in depth. This will be a study for a later time, and, and I encourage you to do this. But I want you to give kind of a big, get a big picture snapshot of what is going on here. These are letters to seven actual churches. These are not like parables, okay? Like we read in the Gospels, these are letters written to seven actual churches. There are seven churches that were in the Asia Minor area at the time. John the apostle is given these letters from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. You can look on the screen. But in Revelation 1:11, we see it says, "Saying," and this is to the apostle John. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and last. What thou seest, John, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And that's the seven different church letters that we will come upon. Three of those we're going to look at today as we talk about the subject of revival. These letters were given to be read to these actual churches. And then later on, we're included in the canon of Scripture and in the book of Revelation, which we now have in our hands. These seven churches represent, I don't want you to forget this, not seven church buildings, but seven groups of people. That's important. If we think of it as a building, it's really easy to kind of gloss over it, right? That doesn't apply to me. This is just some organizations that he's writing to, and yeah, shame on them, they shouldn't have done that stuff. This is seven groups of people. These seven churches. It's also important important to point out that Jesus does not refer to all of the people in these churches as being saved, as being born again believers. These are, in essence, the very meaning of the word ecclesia, an assembly. Okay, it's an assembly, it's called out for a purpose. The purpose of these assemblies was church. They have church, and they are doing that. Some other things I'd like you to understand about these letters, okay, as as we kind of give ourselves a, a, a big picture snapshot. You know, who were these letters written to? Well, the word angel, you're going to see this at the beginning of each of the three letters. um, The word angel. And angel is a Greek word, angelos, or messenger. It's only used in Revelation, at least what I found. It's only used in reference to divine beings. But that's not the definition of the word. Okay, the definition of the word is a messenger so I personally believe that this is, this is talking to pastor or elder of each church. These letters were given to a messenger, an angel, it says in our English Bible. Um, but that messenger was to take it to the church, and it was to be read to the church. That is not a definitive definition. I mean, it could literally be that these, there is an angel that's been assigned to every church. There's so much in the heavenlies that we don't really know that goes on. So that could be what this is. We don't know. It does not change the message, though. The messenger was to take this message given by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John to each of these real churches, these real groups of people. And when you think of real groups of people, you're talking about individuals. Again, don't let it just be a massive crowd. That doesn't apply to me, no. That crowd was made up of individuals, just like we are made up of individuals. Together we're a called-out assembly, but as an individual, you're a soul. Individually accountable to Almighty God. Individually worth saving. Individually worth dying for. And today, individually asking yourself the question, do I need revival? We see, and we already talked about this, but I just want you to be clear, who is the author of these messages? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God. And we see the Trinity in and out of all this. Um, if you're open to Revelation, I'm just going to draw your attention to a couple spots, but we'll read them later on. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Well, if you are taking notes, this is a reference to Jesus from chapter 1, verse 16. All right. The second letter to the church in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, it's, it's written from He that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We see that seven stars again. This is a reference to the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, seven sevenfold aspects or ministries of the Holy Spirit, we believe. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, we, we see this is from, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, and that is a reference to Jesus again in, in chapter 1, verse 14. So they kind of cross-reference each other. These are from the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty, the Holy Spirit of God. You say, well, which one is it? All of them. Every single letter ends off, every man that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's all of them. God is, is not divided in his character. Uh, number three, God claims divine awareness in the states of these churches' life. You're going to see this, and uh, you know I apologize for the distraction of that verse. There we go, I'll leave it back to there. So... Uh, At the beginning of every letter, he says the same phrase, I know thy works. I know thy works. I know what you're doing. And let us not forget that even though it's so easy in our daily, weekly lives to gloss over the fact that Almighty God sees everything we are doing, let that invade our hearts this morning. He says to these churches, to these individuals, I know what you're doing. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. No different here. Number four, each one of these letters points to an area that these individuals, these churches as a whole, needed to repent of. They needed to turn from this. There was something they were doing. Now, he gives compliments from time to time and uh, tells them what they're doing well. Not, not, it's different with every single church in the, in the letters here. But every single one of them gives these churches something they need to not just work on, but totally turn from. And we're going to see that. He, he points out something that each church needs to fix and turn away from. A sinful state or a habit that they must turn their backs on. That's, that's repentance or judgment was coming. And today, we cannot expect any less. If you and I find ourselves throughout the course of these weeks to be guilty of needing revival. We have to be honest why we need revival. Because we're sinful. We're sinful, and at some point, as we do these tests here this morning, at some point we realize things are not as they should be. We need to be revived. Number five, what was the judgment uh, promised to those who would repent? Well, pretty stiff judgment. It wasn't just a, well, I understand you're sinful, living in a broken world, although God is understanding. That's not what he says here. These churches had taken this a little further. They were now at a point that where out of all the churches there in Asia Minor, he pearls out seven. You seven are in danger of judgment. He says to the first church there in, um, I should have wrote down the names there. I got Laodicea, I got um, first church. What's the first church there we're looking at? (laughs) Ephesus, yeah, sorry. (laughs) You try hearing that from the pulpit. (laughs) Okay, Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea. So the church church there in Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse 5, here's the judgment he pronounces. If you don't repent of this, I'm going to remove your candlestick. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Well, it absolutely does and is a humongous deal if you understand that without God being here, this this is not this is not a good thing. We cannot do church here with the way you and I think of church. We cannot do it without him here. We can't. It's impossible. I mean, we just might as well go to the house. God's not going to be here. He says, if you don't turn Ephesus from this, I'm going to remove your candlestick. I'm going to take your authority. I'm going to take your blessing. I'm going to take myself. He says to the uh, the first church there in um, Sardis, the church in Sardis there in chapter 3, verses 4, he says, I'm going to come upon you suddenly. If you don't repent, I'm going to come upon you suddenly, in chapter 3, verse 4, and I'm going to cause you harm. I'm going to come like a thief, he said. Thieves never have good at the interest when when they come into a place. And then the last church in Laodicea, by the way, the, the worst church out of all seven, um, God says, if you don't repent, I will not have anything to do with you. Matter of fact, he says at the end, and we'll look at this, he says, I'm standing outside of the church, and I'm knocking. No one is letting me in. What a, what a sad commentary. To be not just a part, but can we just personalize this? be an individual, that God wants access to my life and somehow I would restrict that. How sobering. And then as we see it, you know, in, in number six, each of these churches, amazingly enough, they seem to be totally unaware of the issue. That was sobering to me as I studied this. Each of these churches, they do not seem to know that this is their state. Matter of fact, some of them are thinking the opposite, and he says that. Hello? That's the Holy Spirit calling for us this morning. Pay attention. These churches seem to be unaware of the issue. And lastly, as part of the Church of Jesus Christ, you and I, we need to pay very close attention to these. In every single letter, he ends off He that hath an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. If you have the ability to take in information, to take in truth into your mind and heart, listen to what is saying. This is not saying we have some dear deaf people over here. We all have the ability, whether we're seeing it, whether we're reading it, whether we're hearing it, uh, whether we're reading it on a computer, whether we're reading it in a book, it does not matter. If we have the ability to allow truth to come into our hearts and our minds, we better listen and take heed to the truth that he is sharing here to the churches, to the churches, to the assemblies, to the individuals. So let's go through these, and and we really put them in the form of three tests this morning. Three tests. The church of Ephesus, let's go in Revelation chapter 2. Okay, the church at Ephesus. We know this church, It's, it's very popular in Christian circles for this theme. They had lost their first love. Church of Ephesus had lost their first love. And here's our test. If you do not love Jesus the way you once did, you need revival. Church of Ephesus had this same problem. Verse number one of Revelation chapter two Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor. And thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and hast not fainted. I mean it's all good stuff, right? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." A lot of word pictures, a lot of truth in there. And we, unfortunately, I love to go deep with these things. We just don't have the time this morning. But I want you to pull out a few things out of each, ending in this case in test number one. These people here, the church of Ephesus, these people were given high compliments by the Lord. By the way, our scripture reading this morning was written to that church, Ephesians. They were given high compliments by the Lord. I mean, they were serving, they were laboring. They were peaceful and patient among each other. There wasn't divisions that we see. Um, They would not put up with evil. I mean, they were not going to stand by and just be bowled over with evil. They were going to say something about it, and they were not going to sit in the company of evil without standing up for what was right. They would not be complacent in this. They were committed. They held their leadership to a high spiritual standard. I mean, they were not going to let some guy come in and not preach doctrine, not lay down the law. They weren't going to do it. They checked what was being taught from the pulpit, and they found many that were teaching falsehood and called them liars. I mean, they called them out on it. They were bearing the burdens that that would come with other Christians and other people that would come in their fellowship. They were bearing those burdens with one another. They did this without feigning. I mean, they did it without quitting. They were known for this. What a great testimony. Even better to me, Seems like, at least from right now, who were they doing all this for? They say, Jesus himself says, you did this for my name's sake. Even seems like maybe they had the right reasons for what, all this that they were doing. But he says, nevertheless, there was one thing that Jesus had against them. And you may say right now, as I was tempted to think, well, I mean, just one thing. I mean, if I could have just one thing. That would be awesome. But this one thing was life-altering enough, was damning enough that God said, if you do not repent from this one thing, I will remove the lampstand from your church. What was it? He says, if you don't get rid of this, if you don't repent of this, I will remove my presence, my power, my authority. He says in verse number four, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. The word left here means to depart from. They had left the person that they were to love more than anyone or anything. We know this verse. This man comes to the Lord asked Jesus in Matthew twenty two on the screen behind me. Master, which is a great commandment in the law, and Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love thy neighbor love the, the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. You see, you and I cannot forget that loving the Lord our God is, if not the, definitely one of the core tenets of being a Christian. Like, you cannot have both of you. You cannot decide not to love the Lord and still be a Christian. You can't make that decision. They don't don't go together. They were serving this church in Ephesus with zeal and dedication. I mean, they were there every single time they were supposed to be there, and they were doing it with excellence, and they were doing it under the name of God. But Jesus says, not because you loved me. It was not an outpouring of your love for me. It had become a ritual, had become a duty, had become something they did in Jesus' name, absolutely. And they never dropped the ball. They held doctrine high. They held service and commitment high. They hated evil. They were not going to stand for that. You know, we would probably, you and I would probably never consider actually being okay with the following scenario. The scenario that a husband or a wife could walk up to their spouse and say, I just want you to know I do not love you, but I want to remain your spouse. I want to, you know, we'll still have all the benefits of being a spouse. We'll still raise our kids together. We'll still enjoy this house together and and other physical benefits as well. Everything that comes with being a spouse, I want to enjoy those things, but I just want you to know I don't love you. That seems ridiculous to us, does it not? So would it seem ridiculous to us if we turned around and said the same thing to God? God, I want to enjoy the benefits of being a Christian, but I don't love you. You say, oh, I would never say something like that, and I wouldn't either, so we're in good—we're co- well, company. I don't know if it's good company or not, but we're in company this morning. I would never say that either. But do my actions prove that that's really what I mean? I don't know about you, but sometimes I can, I can almost convince myself that I mean something, But when I look really at the core philosophy of my life, my life doesn't match up to what I'm saying I mean. And if what I'm doing in my life, if my behaviors and my actions coming from my life say one thing, and I'm saying another thing, which one of those things is true? The behavior. That's what is true, not what is coming out of my mouth. Ephesus is right here. We can identify with Ephesus Lord, we don't love you, but we want to be Christians anyhow. Test number one, if I don't love Jesus the way I once did, I need revival. I need revival. Test number two, we're at the church at Sardis. Test number two, if my spiritual life is defined by my activity for God rather than my intimacy with God, I need revival. I will let that sink in To your minds and hearts, I've had all week to think about it. This church had the external appearance of life, but they were dead inside. An amazing and astounding and sobering testimony. Chapter 3, we're in chapter 3 of Revelation. Verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The church at Sardis, they had a name that portrayed them as a vibrant church that loved the Lord, a church that was full of life. Maybe they had a church name, full of life, Baptist Church. I don't know. I don't think there's Baptist Baptists back then, just so you know. But... Maybe they had a church name that said that. I don't, probably not what this is talking about. They had gained a name, just like you and I do. As people observe our actions, we gain a name, we gain a testimony. Some of you have nicknames to prove it, all about those actions, whatever they are. And we know that. That's probably what is happening here. The name they had gained was dead. You're alive, but you're actually dead. They had a name to those on the outside, and they had a name to the one who really knew. To the outside, for whatever reason, they were thought to have life. God looks down, knows their works, and says, Oh, you have a name that you're alive, but you're not alive. You are not what you seem on the outside. What would give them the picture of life? Well, in a human standpoint, we would think of really what they're talking about. Lots of activity, right? Lots of events going on. Maybe really active ministries. I mean, they're ministering in multiple different levels. You come to their church and there's something for you to get involved in. I mean, they're out in the parking lot greeting you when you walk up. They are serving coffee uh, to give you a time of fellowship out in the, in the other end of the church. They're giving you bulletins so that you can stay... Um, encouraged and engaged in the service. They're giving you a place to actually use your talents and gifts. That sounds like here, doesn't it? And those are all fine and good things. He says, from the outside, it looks great. But I know your works. Everybody else thinks you're alive, but I know you're dead. As God peers into our hearts this morning, He knows again individuals. God peers into the life and the heart of each and every one of us. What does He find? The word "dead" here is literally just means lifeless. In this case, this word, uh, this Greek word, they told me, um, pertains to a particular type of person. Okay. And so this is a dead person, and it's not talking about zombies. This isn't the zombie apocalypse right here in scriptures. Okay, this is a person who is lifeless. You know, the picture of death in the scriptures is always um, associated with sin. This is a person who is bound by their sin, who returns to their sin, is engaging in their sin, but knows how to put a good outside exterior on. I mean, it could be anybody and anyone. It could be me. It could be you. Because you, quite honestly, don't know what's in my heart, and I don't know what's in yours. But he knows our works. He knows. And as we sit before him honestly this morning, what does... He sees, my spiritual life, am, am I feeling pretty good and spiritual right now because I do a lot here at Eastside Baptist Church? Or am I feeling spiritual because I know I have a close walk with my God? That's not perfect, absolutely not. But I know I'm walking with God. I know I'm seeking the Lord. What is the case with us? Is your life defined by activity with God or for God rather than intimacy with God? You may need revival this morning. Our last church is the church of Laodicea. As we continue on in chapter 3, test number 3, if my commitment to Christ has grown lukewarm and my pursuit of holiness has been compromised, I need revival. If my commitment to Christ has grown lukewarm, we're going to, have to go over that word in a minute, and my pursuit of holiness has been compromised, it, it's not what it once was. I need revival. Under this, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, for sake of time, I'm not going to read this entire passage right here, but let's get the, the idea of it. And unto the church, angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, thou wert either cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee or spit thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I'm rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not. Did you get that? And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He goes towards the end in verse 21, uh, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit, what the Lord says unto the churches. The church in Laodicea receives the most scathing report. Out of all seven churches, as you read these churches, they get progressively worse, each one of them. These people here in Laodicea were indifferent. I mean, they weren't throwing themselves into the evils of the culture, but they weren't demonstrating dedication to God, either fervor in their walk with God. I mean, their service, their attendance, their relationships with each other, it was just average. Kind of commonplace. Just melted right in with the culture. The word God uses here for them was lukewarm. That's a word that means literally moderately warm. It's not hot, it's not cold, it's right in between, lukewarm. They were this way because they'd allowed, he says, their riches, allowed their riches to remove their dependence on God. I'm rich, I have need of nothing. I, I don't need anything, and that is, can be. Uh, you know, there's probably most of us in here wouldn't desire to be wealthy at some point, and um, even though maybe we don't necessarily aren't seeking that, we would be okay if it was endowed on us, right? And um, if you wanted me to win the lottery, I would be okay with that. You know, but the danger in riches is absolutely exactly what he's talking about here, that we can become so comfortable that we no longer depend on the Lord. You and I, we cannot forget that God desires for his child to be dependent on him his entire life, his entire life. He says, you've said I'm rich, increased with goods, I have need of nothing. They'd allowed their riches to be a source of pride. It's it's about me. They'd allowed their riches to be their comfort and their protection. So they'd created this aura around themselves without even saying it, this aura that says by my actions, God, I don't need you. It would be perfectly they would be perfectly fine if God was not at the center of their life. They would be okay with that, and they were okay with that. In verse 17 of chapter 3, this is what they said. This was their testimony. I'm rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing. But Jesus says, and you don't even know. You don't even know that you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. To me, that's the most sobering part of all of this. Not that they're rich, but that they think they have it all together. They think they have everything handled. And he says it's actually the opposite. You are blind to yourself. You cannot even see what is really happening in your life. They were convinced everything was great, but in reality, they were the worst of all seven churches. Chapter 2, verse 19, um, as Jesus says this, you know, he says, Many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 19. I didn't get you. Sorry, I heard pages turning. Sorry. Chapter 3, verse 19. He said, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. And he with with me. And, And yes, we can relay that to salvation, absolutely, but this is not the context. He is talking to a church, yes, filled with individuals, and saying, you're rich in need of nothing. You don't need me. You don't need me even to the fact I am standing outside of your church. I'm not even in there, and you don't even realize it. I'm not even a part of your church, and you don't even know it. But I'm standing at the door, and I'm knocking, and I'm giving you a chance to open the door and to let me be a part. Just think of the mercy of God even being willing to do that. I think in my humanity, I probably would have said, Pfft, I got better things to do. (laughs) Destruction, whatever, fire and brimstone, whatever it takes. You know, I I have other churches that at least want to do what's right. This one, I'm not even in there, and they don't even know it. They're they're good without me. Fine, go, have a good time. But not our loving Lord, not Him. We have to remind ourselves that if our commitment to this Lord, if our commitment to Christ has grown just like this church, lukewarm. If my pursuit of holiness, if I'm no longer trying to be holy, if I'm no longer trying to be close to God, I've kind of set it on spiritual cruise control. I mean, you know, I'm busy. I've got other things I've got to do. Maybe we've let go of our first love. Maybe without even realizing it, our life has become about activity for God and not time with God. Maybe, as a result, we could say with this church and the judgment on this church, my commitment to Christ has really become just that. Lukewarm. I mean, I'm not... You know, you and I, I don't know about you, but if I'm not a super coffee coffee snob, but if I walked into the Coffee Connection, and unless it had been two days I hadn't had any coffee, If I walked in and picked up a cup of coffee and it was not hot, but it wasn't cold either, it had just been sitting there for about six hours, that just would not be interesting to me at all. Now, I don't know that I would spit it out because there's carpet in there and I don't want to stain the carpet, you know, still like that. But the picture would be the same. I'd be like, I need to go find some place to spit this out. And God gives us that picture. He says, I don't even want to be around you. I don't even want to be around you. You're not hot, you're not cold. I, I would that you were one or the other. And, and we can guess why he says one or the other. To me, it, it becomes very dangerous ground when people that wear his name do not walk worthy of his name. And we're so visual creatures. What do we do? I mean, many, so, so, so many people determine what Christians are by what they see, not by what they read in the book. And God knows that. I think that's probably why he's saying that. But either way... Their commitment was waning. This church, all seven churches, needed revival. All seven buildings filled, or tents, or whatever they were, filled with groups of people, filled with individuals, filled at 220 Colton Avenue, had to ask themselves, are we willing to repent of these things? Are we willing to turn from these things? If not, judgment is coming. And when is the last time, and I had to ask myself this this week, when is the last time I wondered if judgment was coming our direction? Now we always think, yeah, judgment's come to America, right? Because all the sin, sinfulness and just the bold, bold statements that uh, such sinful organizations and practices are being lifted up in our country and around the world. Yeah, we have no problem thinking judgment is coming. But would we ever consider that judgment was coming to us? Lots of questions to consider this morning. Do you need revival? And quickly, uh, he gives us in chapter 2 a very basic outline. He does it, he he splits it up throughout all the letters, but chapter 2, the church at Ephesus gives us a very clear picture of what to do if we want to get out of this. We realize, yes, I need revival. Here's a very simple message for us to chew on and think on this week. In chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Nevertheless, in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Here's how you get back to me. In verse 5, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Oh, there's there's a nice little outline there. Number one is remember. Think back Think the word revival means there was life there at one time. Revival is not something an unsaved person, a lost person can get because you're still dead in your sins and you need to be saved, and I hope you will be today. Revival is a person that has been saved. Revival is a person that has been uh, walking with God, has been seeking God and, and searching for God and walking on that path with God. Um, revival is for a person that once was serving God for the right reasons, pouring out their life as as an act of love to the one who loved them and died for them, forgave them. There was once life there. Now that life has waned and has chilled. And we can honestly say before God, I need to be revived. I need to be revived. Well, you have to go back and remember those times. What exactly is the scope? What does it mean to be revived? What are you reviving to? Well, if you can remember at this time, it's what Jesus did when he brought you to life. The desires and the thoughts that were in your heart and your mind, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. There was ways and desires in you that were uncommon to those that were around you. That was the salvation that God brought into your life. Remember that time. Remember And he says, secondly, verse 5 there, repent. Repent just means to turn. I'm going to turn my back. I'm over here living this way. I'm going to repent. I don't want that anymore. And just by very nature, if I'm repenting and turning to God, I forsake that. Repent. And then do the first works. Redo. God is so gracious to give us a chance to go back and start again. He is promising severe judgment to these churches, but only if they will not repent. Did you notice that? This is not letters of judgment. I am coming to judge you. He says, I am coming to judge you, but in his goodness and graciousness, he sends them a warning. That's goodness right there. He didn't have to do that. You know, he didn't have to, did you know God didn't have to write a Bible for us to read? He didn't have to do that. God wants us to know. He wants us to know Him. He wants us how to live this life, the best possible life we can have. And I know that's like a self-help statement nowadays, to have the best life, you know, your best life. There's all sorts of weirdo statements like that out now. But the point is God ultimately wants that. But the best life is not life for yourself in your own successes and, and aspiring certain things in your life. The best life is life with God, life with your Father, And it may be that you and I could just be honest today and say, I have not been living my best life. I need revival. Start back at the basics. Start back when when you were humble before God. Start back when you were sensitive to the sins that you committed. Start back when you cared about whether you hurt someone or not. Start back when you had an awareness of God in your everyday life When you wanted to be around the Lord and his people, you had a desire to do that. Start back to that. Start walking with God once again. Do I need revival? I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. And yes, we're going to have an invitation time. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, at this time. You know what, I'm going to ask you two things. So let's go ahead and every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to give you a chance. If God has arrested your attention this morning by his spirit and has shown you that you need to be saved this morning, I am so thankful you're here. And I'm going to ask you to be brave enough to just leave the seat that you're in and head right back to the lobby. We have a man and a woman that will take you from the scriptures and show you how you can be saved. I'm just encourage you to leave right now. Just dismiss yourself right out of your aisle. Don't wait, please. And you can do this during any point in this invitation. They will be there for you to take you to a room and show you how you can be saved this morning. Would you do that? Don't wait. Don't wait. If you don't do that, I'm assuming that you've been saved. You're born again. And I'm going to ask you now if you are physically able to leave your seat and come down to this altar. Just go ahead now. If you're physically able, would you come down and join me down here at this altar? You can kneel, you can stand, whatever you're able to do. We're not looking for a 12-week event. We're looking for revival. It is something that only happens in a group if it's happening in individuals. And would you ask this morning, would you ask God to revive you?